Or you may know about Oscar Schindler. How many of you know about Irina Sendler? We're going to find out about her right now. Some of the things that Irina taught us come to mind. One of those being Irina was always very adamant that you cannot separate people based on race, religion, creed. You can only separate people based on good and evil. And she believed, and I believe, that the good will triumph. Welcome to St. Louis In Tune, and thank you for joining us for fresh perspectives on issues and events with experts and community leaders and everyday people who are driving change and making an impact that shapes our society and world. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker, along with co-host Mark Langston. This is an incredible show today as we uncover the story of Irina Sendler, an unsung hero who saved over 2,500 Jewish children during the Holocaust. It's a true testament to the power of human kindness. Megan Felt, the program director at the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes, shares her personal connection to the story of Irina Sendler and the impact it has had on her life. The Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes is a unique institution that collaborates with teachers and students globally to discover and highlight unsung heroes through research and storytelling. Many times you discover some unknown areas that you delve into. I discovered one of those in Fort Scott, Kansas, the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes. We are going to be talking to Megan Felt. She's the program director at the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes. Megan, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get into Irene Sendler's story, tell us a little bit about the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes and tell us a little bit about why you are involved here. At the Lomokin Center for Unsung Heroes, we collaborate and work with teachers and students around the world, helping them discover positive role models, unsung heroes for the students to research using primary and secondary sources, putting them together, creating performances, exhibits, documentaries, websites, however the students choose to share the unsung hero stories and then share them with the communities that they live in, share them with their friends and family. But through this process, the students become the storytellers, and there's an ownership and a passion that develops in making their unsung hero story known to the world. And through this process, the students also learn about themselves and what they believe in and how they want to make a difference in the world, just like their unsung heroes. You learn something about yourself because you were involved in a project that is the Irina Sendler Project. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that and why it has spurred you now to be the program director here. In 1999, I was a freshman at Uniontown High School in Uniontown, Kansas. And growing up, you hear you would hear about Norm Kennard, our high school history teacher, and the amazing projects he was doing with students and the different unsung hero stories they were telling and where they'd get to go and who they would meet and these amazing opportunities that these students had through developing the projects. So Each year, Mr. Kennard would bring students into his classroom, and you would hear from other students who'd done projects, and you could sign up to complete a project. So I signed up for group performance with Liz and Sabrina. And as we were researching, we decided as a group we wanted to learn more about the Holocaust than what we had already learned in our classes. We wanted to dig in and dive a little deeper. So we asked Mr. Kennard, do you have any any ideas, any topics? And he said, well, I have this box of clippings, newspapers, magazine articles I've gathered throughout the years. 
look through, see if you find anything interesting. And in it was a 1994 News and World Report article entitled The Other Schindler. So it was five years old at the time. And it featured eight rescuers' stories. And one of the paragraphs said Irena Senlorova saved over 2,500 Jewish children from the Warsaw Ghetto during the Holocaust. We thought 2,500, this has to be a typographical error because that's twice as many as Oscar Schindler. Why haven't we heard her story? So we went to our teacher and he said, I don't know much about her other than the article. Why don't you try and do a Google search? So we typed in her name and there was one hit. It was the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous in New York City confirming she saved children. There are a couple paragraphs in English about her. So we started researching. We went to the Midwest Center for Holocaust Education in Kansas City. We went to university libraries, state historical societies, but there was nothing in English about her. Mm. Mr. Kennard said, why don't you start researching the Warsaw Ghetto? Other rescuers stories, Poland, World War II, the Holocaust, to try and write this performance you're working on. And we started thinking she'd be 90 years old. She's maybe not still alive. Let's see if we can find her burial site. And the next day we get an email saying she's still alive. She lives in Warsaw, Poland. Here's her address. Wow. So immediately we write a letter. We send a copy of our script. We send a picture of us and money for her to send a letter back to us. And I remember going into the post office in our small rural town in Kansas thinking, why would a woman in Eastern Europe care about kids in rural Kansas? Right. So I'll never forget the day that Liz came running down the hallway shouting, we got <laughs> waving it in the air. And we all run back to Mr. Knard's classroom. We're so excited. We're going to hear from our hero. And we open the letter and it's seven pages handwritten Polish. Wow. And the, we found a translator at KU, thankfully. And the very first line said, to my dear and beloved girls, very close to my oh heart. My and she started to share with us how she saved the children why she saved the children. Wow. She told us she continued to have nightmares every single night of her life and ask herself, did I do enough? Could I have done more? And so that's our question as we share and we tell her story. Are you doing enough? Can you do more to make a positive change in the world around you? So your teacher had been doing these unsung hero projects and you guys wrote this play. No. Pick up the story a little bit, if, if you would, because her story is, it's right on the edge of life and death. Yes. When she was five years old, her father and mother moved to a small town outside of Warsaw called Odvosk, and he was a doctor in the Jewish town there, and the typhus epidemic broke out with World War One, and the other doctors left the town, but he stayed to help the people in this community, and he ended up getting typhus. And she would sit outside of his bedroom and have long conversations with him. She wasn't allowed to go in and talk to him, but she sat right outside his door. And he told her, if you see someone drowning, you have to jump in and save them, whether you can swim or not. Mm. And that's exactly how she lived her entire life. So in as the rise of the Nazis occurred in the 1930s, Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, mm -hmm. She's aware of what's happening to Jewish people mm -hmm. in Germany with the Nazis taking over. And as Nazi G in Germany invades Poland in September 1st, 1939, she immediately starts to use her place of employment as a being higher up in the social welfare department in Warsaw. And she has the signature she needs to start making the false documents that she started making for her Jewish friends immediately. So before the ghettos even formed in May of 1940, she's already 
working with her collaborators that she's gathered to put her Jewish friends and their families in hiding. Mm. When the ghetto forms, she and her collaborators now, uh, which are 25 collaborators, 24 women, one man, they have to have access to go in and out of the ghetto. So they decide to disguise themselves as nurses to start going in and out of the ghetto. They start talking to orphans first because they didn't have to convince parents or grandparents to allow them to bring out the children because they'd say, what's the guarantee? And she'd have to say, I can't even guarantee we'll get out of the ghetto alive. Taking the orphans, there were many different ways she would take the orphans out of or children out of the ghetto. She told us she could never use the exact same way twice because it was far too dangerous. Once she would bring the child out or a collaborator would bring a child out, they would write down the Jewish names, the Jewish parents' names, their new Christian name, their age, and where they were placed on slips of paper like tissue paper, which they placed into milk jars and buried under an apple tree in her friend's backyard, which was located right across the street from the Nazi barracks. Hmm. So it was under their nose the entire time, but they had no idea what she was doing All of the rescues were completed by the summer of 1942 when the mass deportations started moving people from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka. At that time in 1942 in December, she would become the head of the Children's Division for Zhigoda, the underground organization she started collaborating with. And then in October of 43, one of her collaborators was was caught. Mm. And she said, I don't know anything. You want Irina Sendler. So they went to Irina's home. It was October 20th, 1943. It was actually her name day, which in Poland, it's uh, more important than your birthday. Hmm. And so she and her mother were out celebrating and they came home and the Nazis were in her apartment waiting for her. Hmm. They arrested her, took her to prison where she refused to speak. Then they took her to Paviak, which was known as a harsh prison located inside the center of the Warsaw Ghetto. And there they fractured her legs and feet, torturing her. She said, thankfully, she passed out from the pain Mm. because she was about to start giving information. The night before she was to be executed, one of her collaborators, who was a member of Zhigoda, bribed the guard at her cell, and she was able to escape and to go into hiding for the rest of the war. Mm. And after that, she found out that she supposedly had been executed. Yes. There were handbills posted all over Warsaw and surrounding communities saying, bring this woman to us dead or alive. She was number two on their list of people they wanted and were looking for. After the war, when the Communist Party took over, she was continued to be watched. Wow. Uh, Her children, who were born after the war was over, some 20 years later, when it's time for them to go to university, they weren't allowed to attend the University of Warsaw because of her actions during the war. Oh, my God. When did she go back to the apple tree and retrieve the milk jars to determine if the parents were still alive and maybe reuniting the children and the parents? After the war, she dug up the lists. She had copies of the lists made, and several hundred of the children they could not reunite with family members were taken to Israel to try and see if they could locate family members in Israel. She kept copies of the list and continued to search in Warsaw, but because of the clandestine nature, because we've documented a couple of families who fell in love with the children and moved and didn't ever report moving so mm. that they could keep the children, unless the family members were rescued or brought out of the ghetto too, they were most likely executed at Treblinka. There's a story about 
a child that she took out in a, I want to say a box? Carpenter's box. Carpenter's box. What is that? Tell us a little bit about that story. That's probably the most famous rescue, Elżbieta Pisowska. She was five months old when she was sedated and placed in a carpenter's box to be brought out of the Warsaw Ghetto. But her parents said, wait, before you take her, we want to put a silver spoon in the box with her first name only. It was too dangerous to have her last name and her date of birth, January 5th, 1942. And she was taken out. Her parents, her father went out on a work detail and he met one of Irina's collaborators and he gifted a the christening dress that she was then christened. She was actually raised by one of Irina's close friends. She said, I'll just keep them until we find a more permanent home. But she ended up falling in love with this little girl, especially when they realized that her parents had been taken to Treblinka. There were plans to rescue them, but unfortunately they were too late and mm -hmm. they had already been taken to Umschlagplatz to the train station in the Warsaw Ghetto. Her father refused to get on the train. He kept saying, I have a baby girl. I have a baby girl. And he was shot mm. and placed in a trash can. Mm. And her mother got on the train and was taken to Treblinka and murdered at Treblinka. And they have a unique reuniting. Yes. So Elspieta actually grows up her entire life knowing who Irina Sendler is, hearing her story, having her silver spoon. She searched most of her life for a photograph of her mother and her father. But at the end of Irina's life, it comes full circle with Elspieta there caring and providing for Irina. They met and she became her caretaker at the end of her life. Yes. Wow. It's amazing how, how life moves from one thing to another. And, and speaking about that, how has this impacted your life, especially as a high school student? Because you ended up having an opportunity to, to meet Irina. Yes. When the project started, not, it started September 23rd, 1999. We're actually coming up on the anniversary next week of when the project started. The day we found the clipping is also the day that Irina's beloved son, Adam, passed away. Mm -hmm. And she thought her life was over. And every day after that, she wore black in the morning of the loss of her son. Little did she know she'd have a new family half a world away. Three daughters. And a new son, right. Professor Pro Norman, right, is what right. she called Mr. Kennard. <laughs> And we had a very beautiful, special relationship develop with her. But not long after the project started, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And my mom was my best friend. We lived on a, we lived in a rural community and my dad farmed and mm. we uh, ran about 600 head of cattle, had about a thousand acre row crop. And with my mom being sick, that kind of just threw everything off. She was the center of the world for all of us. Right. My brother was in fifth grade at the time. And um, this project, Irina's story, Life in a Jar, it gave me perspective at 14 mm. years old. Yeah, And I realized what we were fighting was, wasn't anything compared to right. the Holocaust. And every day when I would come home, my mom would say, have you found her yet? Have you heard from her yet? Yeah. And that kept uh, the conversation going and some hope and excitement through that process. But through my freshman year, she went through chemo and radiation. So she was in remission my sophomore year. And we started getting calls and requests for performances with Life in a Jar. And we said, we're working on a documentary now. We're telling the story of Hudie Ledbetter. We're proving he's a pioneer on the frontier of American music. We needed a lighter topic, we thought, after studying the Holocaust for right. a year. 
And we started getting requests. And one of those requests came from a friend of Mr. Kennard's. And he thankfully said, yes, they'll do the performance for us. So we went to Kansas City to a middle school and we performed four times one morning at a middle school for their Holocaust week. And there happened to be a Jewish businessman that there that year who decided to teach history for one year, happened to be that year. He watched all four performances and he took us out to lunch afterwards. And he said, ladies, what's your goal with this project? And we said, Irina's become our hero. We'd love to meet her. He said, okay, what are you doing to make that happen? And we said, we're selling candy bars. And he said, how much money have you raised? And I think we said $81. And he said, if I raise the money, will you go to Poland and meet her? And he said, you make films now. Will you come back to my synagogue on September 12th, 2001 and share your story? And we said, sure. And on the drive home back to Uniontown from Kansas City, we're thinking, we don't know this man. He's never going to call. Right. Within 24 hours, he calls Norm's classroom and he said, okay, I've raised the funds. Looks like the end of May is the best time to go to Poland. Wow. You said the girls put something together. We'll see you on September 12th and you can share your trip to Poland at our synagogue. So I called my mom. She was in remission at the time and she was able to go to Poland with us. Wow. And we had a group of 10 that went to Poland and Irina made an eight-page single-spaced itinerary for us. She had outlined the order we needed to learn, to research, to move through the different sites, and we had to wait until the second full day to meet her. Oh, wow. And she, we were meeting in her friend's apartment, and she was having some blood pressure issues, so they weren't sure we were going to get to meet her, so we're standing in the apartment un unsure, and there's a voice coming from the door behind us. And they said, go ahead, open the door. And there she is standing up, waiting for us to come in. She's less than five feet tall. Oh, my. And like I mentioned, the Nazis fractured her legs and feet. They rebroke them after the war, trying to set them properly. So she spent around the last 15 years of her life in a wheelchair. And she's standing up. Wow. Waiting for us. And we rush in and give her hugs. And there's tears and emotions and she looks at the doorway and she points at my mom and she says, Mama Megan. Oh. And then we move into the living room uh, and we're sitting there and we're around her feet and I'm just looking into her eyes thinking, what have these eyes seen? Yes. What has this woman been through? And thinking in that moment, I'm in the room with the two strongest, most influential women in my entire life in the same room. Wow. Seeing Irina there in front of me and my mom sitting in the window seal behind me and with Irina, we gave her a big pink heart signed by all the students from our high school. And in return, she gave us a little gift bag with a smile, a knowing smile on her face. And in it was a heart necklace. And she said, no matter where you are in life, no matter what happens, you'll always have a piece of my heart with mm. you. Wow. I don't know how you got through telling that because it impacts me emotionally in a different way. When you said, my my beloved daughters, when you read the first line, that just teared my eyes up. It was just incredible. And you guys performed the play nationally, too, actually, right? We have performed now 385 times all across the United States, in Jeez. Canada, and in Poland. Wow. So what happened when you went back to the synagogue on September 12th? The morning of September 11th occurred. 
first hour, I was in Mr. Kennard's classroom, video productions class, and we're watching the morning events unfold live on his projector screen. And we're thinking there's no way now we'll be going to the synagogue tomorrow to share Arena's story. Also that morning, uh, we were on NPR. Our story of being in Poland was being played back on NPR that morning in our visits with Irina. And we started receiving emails from all over the U.S. saying we made it through today because we heard Irina Sindler's story of hope and of good on NPR this morning. Mm. And the rabbi called that afternoon and he said, we need you to come tomorrow night. We need Irina's story more now than ever. And so we go to the synagogue and there's security and we move through security and they're telling us, Ladies, we've, we have 400 chairs set up. We've had 200 RSVPs. We're not sure with yesterday's events how tonight's going to go. And we're all very nervous anyway. It's our first time to present for a Jewish audience. We're feeling very inadequate. And right before the performance, Norm, Mr. Kennard comes in and he says, ladies, there's 600 people out there. It's standing room only. Oh, my gosh. And we go out and we present and we share her story. And there was a beautiful, emotional conversation that happened afterwards with the audience sharing stories of hope and of courage and of love and a give and take back and forth. And it was just a very uplifting evening. Walking out of there, we were all feeling full of hope. And realizing that we must, like Irina said, continue to have a positive impact and try and repair our world. What happened to Irina and how significant is it to you personally? My fourth trip to Poland was the last time I was able to see Irina. May 3rd of 2008, she was 98 years old at the time. And Irina had become like a surrogate mother. To my brother and I, our mom ended up passing from her cancer in June of 06. And throughout that time, Irina would email and ask us how we are, what we were doing, and would encourage us. So a very special bond was continued then. Being able to see her May 3rd of 08, she had been in the hospital. She knew we were coming, and they said, if you're in the hospital, you're not going to be able to see Professor Norman and the girls. And... 24 hours before we arrived, she was back in the care home Mm. and we were able to spend time with her. And then within 24 hours of us leaving her, she went back into the hospital and ended up passing away nine days later on Mm. May 12th, Mm. 2008, which is my birthday. Mm. And we found it to be very symbolic. One of the children she rescued, Professor Michael Glowinski, told us it's as if she's passing the torch on to us to keep her light burning, to keep her story going. And she said she was never the hero. The heroes were the Jewish mothers, fathers, and grandparents. She always talked about her collaborators. She never spoke about herself because she was so very humble. And she would want all of their stories to be remembered. And as we say, as we know, we must never forget. That's correct. What should people who are listening, what should they take away from Life in a Jar, the Irina Sendler project? Some of the things that Irina taught us come to mind. One of those being, Irina was always very adamant that you cannot separate people based on race, religion, creed. You can only separate people 
based on good and evil, and she believed, and I believe, that the good will triumph. Mm-hmm. Another thing she believed is we must sow seeds of good, mm-hmm. and we must see that ripple effect of those seeds being sown. And you may never know the impact you have on someone, but if you're sowing seeds of good, then you will see that ripple effect take place. How did you end up here at the Loa Milken Center? Our dream with the Life in a Jar project was to be able to share this idea. Mr. Kennard, he saw the impact that the Unsung Heroes had on his students, providing positive role models for young people, introducing different cultures and ideas and beliefs, and how that can open doors for students and open their eyes to new ways of thinking and and. With that process, Norm was also a Milken Educator Award winner. Mm-hmm. And as he would share these ideas and these projects throughout the years, Mr. Milken became very interested and saw the power. And he also believes in the opportunity to give students to discover, to research, and to find their own way but also having role models to inspire them as they discover how they need to change the world. Mm -hmm. And the beliefs and ideas aligned. And with that, we opened the Lowell Milken Center in 2007 in historic downtown Fort Scott. And throughout the years, we've been able to expand. We've added an exhibit area to share these unsung hero stories and the stories of the students We also now have a fellows program where we bring national and international award-winning teachers to Fort Scott each year, and they spend a week with us learning how to discover these unsung heroes and create these inspiring projects. And it's wonderful to see them complete these projects year after year because they see how their students become inspired to make a difference in the world. And what are some of the projects that you have on display out here right now? One of the projects is Ralph Lazo. He was a student in inner city LA when Pearl Harbor happened. And most of his friends were Japanese and they were being sent to internment camps. And he went home and he said, mom, dad, this is not right. I'm going to Manzanar with my friends. And they said, no, you're not. You've got summer camp. You have all of these things going on. The next morning, he was gone. There was a note on his pillow. He went to Manzanar. He became the student body president in Manzanar. He created different sporting events, activities. He thought if he could raise the morale of the students, he could raise the morale of the camp. And he did. And he would go on after he graduates high school. He was drafted. And then he came back and he got his degree and he became a counselor And as the students, the fourth and fifth grade students who were researching his story, they discovered he went to the same school district that they went, that they attended in inner city LA. And they were inspired by his story that if he could overcome circumstance and situation and become a counselor, that they too could eventually graduate high school and go to college and earn a degree as well. Wow. I think that's just a wonderful story. And as these students would grow past fourth and fifth grade, they would return back to their teacher, Mrs. Garrison, and say, give us a new unsung hero, or we found this new unsung hero we've been researching and wanted to share with you. Their lives were forever impacted. Another unsung hero we have is Alice Seeley Harris. 
and she was a missionary and she went to the Congo and she took her camera with her and she started to see what was happening to the Congolese people and how King Leopold was torturing them essentially to make them gather rubber. And she brought these photos back and he was stopped. The way he treated the Congolese people stopped because of her photographs and her proof of what was happening in the Congo. The students, the four young ladies that created this or put together this documentary, one of those students is now a documentary filmmaker. Oh my gosh. She had never dreamed or even considered making documentaries until this project. And it so deeply impacted her. And she saw how the people who watched Alice Seeley Harris's story were impacted that she knew this was the path for her life. That's unbelievable. Your teacher who got you involved with this, is he still around? Yes, Mr. Norm Kennard. He is our executive director here at the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes. So he left the classroom, but he has a much larger classroom now with right. teaching teachers and students around the world. We've had projects now in all 50 states and in 34 different countries. Would you have thought that your project with your two classmates on uh, Irina Sendler would end up you doing something like this? No, my my goal going into college, I was going to be a pharmacist. I worked at a pharmacy and three semesters into pre-pharmacy, I realized this is not my dream. My dream is to work with teachers and students and see their lives be impacted like mine was. So when the opportunity came, I switched my major to management and marketing, and I have my master's in educational leadership and was thrilled to be able to start at the Low Milken Center when we started in August of 07. You have some big events coming up. What are those and what does that mean to the center here? Uh, at the Low Milken Center, we're going to have a star party. So we're sharing the unsung hero stories, those who have been involved in space and sky and astronomy research and the father of astrogeology. And then we received a grant to purchase a telescope from the Fort Scott Area Community Foundation. So we're going to have several telescopes set up at the Fort Scott National Historic Site after we listen to a NASA ambassador share about the James Webb Telescope. And Mm. we'll move down to the fort and look at different points in the sky through the different telescopes at the Fort Scott National Historic Site. We also have some exciting announcements at the Lomokin Center. The student award winners for our International Discovery Award competition will be announced. And these students, you can see the semifinalists and the finalists on our websites and see the different unsung hero topics they've chosen. So we're very excited to provide some young people with some wonderful prizes for all of their efforts in researching these unsung heroes and sharing their stories. And they can find that at the LowellMilkenCenter.org. That's L-O-W-E-L-L-M-I-L-K-E-N-Center.org. And we're also on social media as well, if you want to find us there. Megan Felt, I really appreciate the time you've been able to, to give to St. Louis in Tune to talk about the Irina Sendler Project and the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes. You are continuing the legacy of something that has impacted not only your lives, but the lives of many other people. And you're educating youngsters and teachers and the general public on people who have done incredible things in their lives that we don't know anything about. Thank you. 
That brings us to the end of another illuminating episode of St. Louis in Tune, and we hope you found the interview engaging and thought-provoking. I would like to extend a big thank you to our incredible guest, Megan Felt, for sharing her personal story and insights of Irina Sendler with us. We truly appreciate her time and the work she does at the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback helps us reach more listeners and continue to grow. Thanks to Bob Berthesell for our theme music, and we thank you for being a part of our community of curious minds. And remember to keep seeking, keep learning, walk worthy, and let your light shine. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.